Well, it should come to no surprise to anyone whose head can be found above the sand that the culture in which we find ourselves a part of today seems to enjoy many, if not all, the comforts afforded to them. Food, and notice I didn't just say pizza, can be delivered to your door. All types of food. Social engagement can happen through a screen, so they say. Income can be generated via the World Wide Web. Relationships can blossom without having ever met your better half in person. Now, it's likely that at least one of you here this evening has already said to yourself, well, come on, Taylor. Don't knock door dash till you try it. Or, Taylor, I've been mining for bitcoins for seven years, and that's how I've already paid off two mortgages. You're right. We've never used DoorDash, and I've never paid off one mortgage, let alone a second. But if that's you, I'd like to say, my friend, you're missing the point. Comfort and convenience are opposite of what our Savior Jesus Christ felt throughout his life on earth. Jesus himself, while seated atop the mountain in Galilee, said to his disciples, in Matthew 5, verse 39, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Furthermore, just two verses later in Matthew 5, verse 41, we see Jesus teach his disciples to inconvenience themselves. When he said, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. It was also Christ who tells us later in Matthew 7 that the broad and wide gate, it leads to destruction. When he concluded, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. It's then no coincidence, is it, that as we begin to examine the book of Haggai, one of the first things we notice is the people of God responding to the Lord's prophet in such a recognizable tone. Actually, they say, now is not the time. Or I would, but what we'll quickly discover as we unfold the text this evening and in evenings and mornings to come is that the Jewish exiles were not much different than you and me. More than willing to exert energy towards greater comfort and greater convenience, all the while procrastinating or delaying those things that are of the utmost importance. Because they don't bring immediate relief or the task, it might take some extended effort. Similar also are we to the exiles in our complaints. Well, I haven't read my Bible. I haven't fasted. I haven't prayed. I haven't repented. But I tithed last week. That counts for something, right, Lord? Those same exiles are the ones who delayed work on the temple and somehow wondered why God was not blessing them in the ways in which they had come to expect. And the question, before we dive into the text, is how did the exiles wind up here? T.V. Moore, he argues that prophecy in some form must coexist with all history that God's will may be known and performed by man. It's likely that some of you have been taught the saying, history is God's story. It's true. And just like you aren't jumping into a Shelby Foote novel without knowing who fought for what side and why they fought for that specific side, 
When we examine the content and tone of which the content is delivered by any, not just Haggai, but any Old Testament prophet, one quickly ascertains it's rather difficult to decode without considering what's happening in the world at that time. We need context. In the year 722 B.C., the ten northern tribes had been taken captive by the Assyrians. That was Reuben, Simeon, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Manasseh, and Ephraim. Judah and Benjamin were in the south, but yet these ten tribes were cruelly treated and never returned to their homeland. So for the next 136 years, the southern kingdom of Judah had some good years under Hezekiah and Josiah. But they had very many bad ones. Then in about 586 B.C., Jerusalem was invaded by Nebuchadnezzar, and he took away captive most of its inhabitants back with him to Babylon. And for about 50 years, the Jews would remain in captivity until, well, 538 B.C., when the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. We then see in Ezra 1 and 2 that the Jewish exiles who came from the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi returned to the city of their fathers, Jerusalem, under the allowance of Persian King Cyrus, 16 years before the first public appearance of the prophet Haggai in 536. Cyrus shall build my city, says the Lord. And it was indeed Cyrus who commissioned Jerusalem to be rebuilt with her walls under the leadership of Nehemiah and the temple under the leadership of Ezra. And so it began. With much fanfare and celebration, causing the priests and the Levites to rejoice in song and praise, exclaiming, For he, the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. The rejoicing, however, was brief. With the courts of both kings who followed Cyrus, Cambyses, Ahasuerus, as well as Smyrna, Artaxerxes ruling in favor of the Samaritans as they pleaded for something to be done, as the text tells us, about this rebellious and evil city. And guess what? Their appeal worked. And in Ezra, chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, we see a decree issued from the throne of the Medes and the Persians that stated that all work is to be ceased and that the city may not be built until the command is given. Yet what we don't see here are any specific commands nor any ban to stop in totality the building of the temple. But again, putting ourselves in their shoes rather than put up a fight and continuing to work regardless of the hardening or despairing of conditions, the Jews stopped working altogether. T.V. Moore again notes the first zeal of the people had grown cold. Discouragement and suspicion began to creep over their hearts. Skepticism, it gradually grew up in their minds, and as a matter of course, worldliness and greed soon became the predominant traits of their character. Having no heart for the work of God, they easily interpreted the obstacles in their way as so many divine animations that they were not to engage in it and turn to the greedy advancement of their own private affairs. Thus the rebuilding stopped for nearly 14 years until the second year of the reign of Darius, who renewed the earlier decree of Cyrus. Which is where our passage picks up this evening, as Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, 
that the word of the Lord came by Haggai on the first day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Who issued the decree for the temple to be rebuilt. And Ezra 6.12, that verse tells us that he issued this decree, decree, excuse me, decree for the temple to be rebuilt, but for it to be done diligently. But what we notice is that the people were anything but diligent. And even though the decree was renewed, what we see here in these first two verses, and why Haggai is here to deliver this message, is that their work was not. And so here's where we first meet Haggai, the prophet of God, whose words urged the people to this work. He first addresses Zerubbabel, the civil ruler of people, and he does so in a way in which it demonstrates that his status was either equal to, if not greater than, that of the high priest to whom he addresses next in Joshua. His fellow prophet, Zechariah, would come forward two months after him to engage in the same great work of urging these people, the people of God, to get back to work. As we study over the coming months, the 38 verses contained in the two chapters that make up this little book, it's anything but little. And one of the book's overarching themes is how the restoration of the temple recalls the people of God to examine And through that examination, to remember the Lord's faithfulness to previous generations in hopes of renewing our endeavors in the Lord's cause as we seek after his will in a combative post-Christian kingdom. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that whenever we see the Lord of hosts, noticing it there in verse 2, we are to think of God's sovereignty, of God's keeping of the covenants. We're to think of everything the Lord has done throughout history. That phrase, the Lord of hosts, also recalls us to the exodus from slavery in Egypt. The promised land the Jews entered into, as well as the conquest of that land under Joshua. And the raising up of the Davidic kingdom. And then because of their unfaithfulness, the removal of God's hand of blessing. Their subsequent exile, as well as their return to the land. All of this would be recalled when they heard that name, the Lord of hosts, spoken to them by the prophet Haggai. And I also hope that as we hear this phrase during our time of study in the book, that we grow in our knowledge as his children of how faithful our father in heaven is. So when those moments come that seem beyond us, beyond our skill set, beyond our resources, beyond our means... And when the pressure rises, not like a crock pot, right, slow and warm, let it sit. But like an instapot, quick and hot. We don't wither up and wave the white flag, but we rethink our attitudes in remembering Haggai's words. And like those to whom he spoke, rethink our attitudes as we trust in the Lord of hosts. So let's get started and let's seek the Lord's help now. Oh, sovereign God, you know our weaknesses. You, Lord, know how much we enjoy our comforts. We will do all in our power to distract ourselves from following you and seeking after your will. And so we ask you to help us now by sending your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to your truth. To turn away from ourselves and to apply ourselves to the study of your word tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Now, I do hope you have your Bibles open and turn to Haggai chapter 1. If you happen to be maybe new to the faith, you're here with a friend, you're visiting for the first time, you're unfamiliar with the Bible, don't pass Matthew. That's the first book of the New Testament. Go back, turn back, you'll see Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai. There's a lot of names there back towards the end with the prophets. Haggai chapter 1. Apart from being a prophet of the Lord, as we're told he is in verse 1, who exactly is Haggai? He's one of the 12 minor prophets, and that matters because of the 66 books in our English Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, there aren't 39 books in the Old Testament. There are only 22, with the 12 minor prophets making up just one book as they descend with each essentially picking up where the previous left off and span almost two centuries from Hosea to Malachi. With the final three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, after 70 years of exile, correlating roughly with the end of Daniel and Ezekiel's ministries, and then extending through Ezra and Nehemiah's ministries, we see that it reaches the time of the restoration. And that's when we get those three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We also see the background for Haggai's ministry, uh, prophetically detailed in Daniel chapter 5 and Jeremiah 25, and then explained to us in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. Specifically, Ezra chapters 5 and 6 detail that both Haggai and Zechariah were sent to this moment to prophesy and to remind the people that this is why they came into the land to begin with. Not to provide themselves with comforts and conveniences and ways to make money doing nothing but to worship Almighty God in both spirit and in truth. Alec Mortier writes, It was the calling of some of the prophets to speak for God in days of great crisis. Isaiah, he says, ministered in critical years. Fifty of them, which saw the rise of Assyrian imperialism, the fallen exile of the northern kingdom of Israel, and the miraculous rescue of Judah. Habakkuk spoke on the very brink of exile and saw the rise of Neo-Babylonian power. Haggai faced in some ways, he continues, a more trying situation. Well, how? He reasons a time of inertia and apathy when spiritual life had burned low and a relatively settled political situation and a fair degree of comfort had resulted and a disinclination to hear the word of God, and upon hearing it, acting upon it. As we'll see later on, Haggai's message is short. It's 38 verses, and it's delivered in a period of under four months. But while his message is brief and broken up into just four distinct prophecies, his prophecies will study deal with gigantic issues. In terms of, of person, the individual known as Haggai, what we have before us in this book is about all we know of him. He's mentioned just two other times, Ezra 5, 1 and 2, telling us that he was a prophet who prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. And Ezra six fourteen dealing how the Jews prospered through the prophesying of Haggai. As they built and finished the temple, according to the commandment of the God of Israel, and according to the command of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. We don't know if Haggai was born in Babylon and returned to Jerusalem with the first group of the exile. But again, what's most significant to God's people is that he was a prophet. And we can't just quickly glance over that point, though, can we? There's a reason 
that this is the only fact of him that we're given. Because you and me, right, our tendencies are to ask, well, where did he go to school? What neighborhood did she grow up in? How much money does he make a year? Right? We need all of those details. We've got to gather our data points in order to factor into how we make our decisions when it comes to engaging with people. More than that, some need details before they engage with classmates, with coworkers, with neighbors. And yet here we have the prophet Haggai who had a word from the Lord in this very fact. It far outweighs who his parents are, what his age is, where he went to school, how much money he makes, what kind of car he drives. Was he homeschooled? Did he go to public school? We need to know these things. Mordier again commenting the fact that he is simply called the prophet Haggai suggests that he was well known and needed no other identification. The message he brought was hugely significant in the unfolding story of God's people. Remember, his prophesying lasted for just four months, but in that blink of an eye, he was used, along with the prophet Zechariah, by God to prevent the return from exile from being a pointless journey and the rebuilding of the temple, a monument to beginning a work which was not completed. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel. Formerly, the books of their prophets have been dated by the reigns of their own kings. Isaiah 1.1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Amos 1.1 reads, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. But now the Jews were ruled by a foreigner, King Darius II. And because of that, they were a part of the Persian Empire. And Darius lets you know it too, doesn't he? In the second year of who? He says, king, I'm to be called the king. It had been 18 years since the decrees of Cyrus. 16 years since the altars and foundations had been restored. But it still wasn't convenient for the people to continue the work. Remember, Ezra 6.12 tells us that Darius issued the decree that the rebuilding be done diligently. It's a long time to, to look diligent. Let's look at how the exiles applied that work. We're already in the reign of another. And sure, back in the land of promise, yet they're still far from regaining their independence. It's kind of like the team that pouted because no one was there to congratulate them after winning the big game. No one's at the tarmac when our plane landed. What's up with that? And here we are, this side of Christ, looking back onto them and saying, well, you've won. What else do you need? What's taken you so long? They did, though, have some reason to be disgruntled. As almost immediately, if you recall, encountered opposition to their rebuilding. There was also a series of poor harvests, and it left their economy in tough shape. So they weren't just totally poor sports, but I would argue they were very close. All of these events, though, factored into their attitudes, and as such left them discouraged, and that discouragement turned to apathy. One day, they said, one day, we'll get to it. 
And so Haggai knew that on the first day of the sixth month, that was indeed the day to speak to the matters at hand. It was the first of five dates given in this short prophecy. And during the exile, the Jews adopted the Babylonian custom to a spring start to the year rather than the previously customary autumn start to the year. So the calendar shifted for them. Further in Numbers 10.10, 1 Samuel 20, verse 5, as well as Psalm 81, verse 3, we see that the first of the month was the feast of the new moon. This meant that, as was the case before the exile, meetings would be held at the sanctuary according to Hosea 2.11, Isaiah 1.13, 2 Kings 4.23. These meetings were to be held in the sanctuary at that time. And so I say all that to say that there would have certainly been additional services at the restored altar in the temple. And because the temple ruins and because of the larger than normal attendance, it's likely that Haggai found this the opportune time to speak to a larger number of people. And speak he did. Yet not his own words, as verse 1 tells us, he spoke the word of the Lord. And Haggai's words came just at the right time. There had been no prophetic voice on record since the time of Jeremiah. Daniel and Ezekiel had been prophets in Babylon. And through Haggai, we see that now the radio silence is broken. And the restored community again hears the Lord's voice. Of this moment, John McKay writes, We do not know by what inner process a prophet received his message. But this phrase, the word of the Lord came, it certainly tells us that it was not just something that he thought up for himself. It was not some superior insight into the conditions of the day that the prophet had. It was communicated perfectly. And that the Lord condescended to express his word precisely in a way that matched the vocabulary and mode of expression natural to the prophet in this case, Haggai, who received it. The prophet had then in turn to pass the message on to the covenant people. Those who had come back from Jerusalem were privileged, he writes, to be addressed by the Lord in this way. The word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Haggai doesn't go screaming for the rooftops, hoping... Someone, anyone hears him. Now he determinedly, what does he do? He goes straight to the power brokers. To those men who had the responsibility for getting things done. And he was undeterred by their previous failings. Both Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and high priest, alongside Haggai, the prophet. This gives us this gospel picture of the three offices of theocracy. We see the prophet, we see the priest, we see the king. And it demonstrates... That window for us to now look to the past, to the times of, of spiritually healthy days, when this was customary for the prophets. They would go directly to the king, addressing him. And so Haggai does this in the hopes of, of shaping the destiny now of the covenant people to look back to healthier times. That's what we want to look forward to. And thus speaks the Lord of hosts. And Haggai's message for his two leaders... To give to this reluctant nation speaks directly to their reluctance. The Lord of hosts, this description of God, appears more than 80 times in the post-exilic prophets. 
And Haggai himself uses this title 14 times. Isaiah 13, 4 says, The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. Haggai is emphasizing the power and resources of God to a people who were very conscious of their own weaknesses. He's saying, wake up. Get a grip. God controls everything. Whether it's referring to angels or stars or the nation of Israel. And using this title, he's reminding them that this Lord, the Lord of hosts, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, he brought you out of exile and back to the promised land. And what is it that the Lord of hosts says? Well, look at verse 2. This people says, the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Can you sense the disappointment in God's voice when he says, this people, these people. It's like the father who's grown the farm that his father started. And here he is ready to hand it off to his son who's decided he's not about working 18-hour work days. There's got to be something better to life. Thanks, but no thanks. Not my people, he says, but these people. Like the husband to his wife, your son. By their disobedience and putting their own comfort and wishes before the purposes of God. Well, they've caused God to be angry and address them, he does, with such reproach. Turn with me to Jeremiah 14, and let's look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord to this people. Thus they have loved to wander, that's with an A, They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. So how do we apply all this tonight? How do we apply two verses? How do we apply what we've studied? And I've got four points of application for us this evening. Like the Jews who knew why they were brought back to Jerusalem, you and I, our circumstances were foreordained by the Lord. And while he's not necessarily called us to to build up a building with our own hands, what he's done is that he's called us to build a church for his own glory. Our first point is when opposition comes, friends, we must remember under no such circumstances are we to compromise our faith. Our attention cannot be more focused on those who oppose our faith and how to best prepare ourselves than it is on being unafraid to diligently apply ourselves to the work that we've been called to do from the Lord. Get to work. Second, the people had grown weary in doing good. They were apathetic, they were lethargic, they were passive. They ultimately had lost sight of the Lord's glory. 
Proverbs 29.18 says that where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. Let us not lose our zeal for the building of God's house and apply ourselves to this work in our own homes, at our own dinner tables, at the bedsides of our children, in our personal times, in our conversations. Devote yourselves to the building of God's house, to the building up of God's covenant children for the purpose of God's glory. It's the future. Have you ever, our third point is, have you ever seen the sport known as rowing? If you haven't, you're not alone. The entire team, though, they work all together in unison, from the bow to the stern. Not one can be out of sorts or off-timed in the hole, and this team is full of members, and each member, each position of the boat, they have a specific job. But at the same time, they're all pulling the collective weight to make the boat go. They're all rowing in unison. Friends, we cannot get discouraged when someone is not pulling their weight. The right attitude in those moments isn't less prayer when things haven't turned out the way you hoped or when someone let you down, someone disappointed you. Even that someone being Almighty God, maybe having not yet answered one of your prayers. The answer isn't less prayer. The answer is more prayer. Are you regularly applying yourself to prayer, to the practice of prayer? If not, I'd say each of us here have four to five easy opportunities throughout the day. Fifteen minutes in the morning before you'd regularly wake up, set that alarm. Thank the Lord. At the dinner table before each meal. At family worship or or during bedtime routines with your kids. Husbands and wives, before you go to bed, that model acts. It's a great model. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Follow it. Do it. Apply it. Lastly, in these two brief verses, we've seen the prophet Haggai establish his credentials, and it lays the foundation for the purpose of his message. His words came from the Lord. If we are to prevent ourselves from growing lazy like those who delayed in the rebuilding of the temple... We must devote ourselves as well as our time and resources to the studying of God's word. We cannot share the love of Christ to our neighbors if we're propped up in our lazy boys. We can inspire those around us to the rebuilding, to the prospering of faithful gospel preaching and teaching churches when we are faithful to the living word of God. Read it. Study it, meditate on it, memorize it. We must seek to be diligent in our application of ourselves, of our time. We all have needs. And those needs sometimes, they take us away from the thing that we need to be doing. We must diligently apply ourselves to the study of God's word. And in turn, let that word, not programs... Let that word breathe life back into a broken and lost world as it did for the audience of Haggai. It inspired them. May it do the same for us this evening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and that it does not return void.
Thank you for the conviction from the Holy Spirit that draws forward our sin and, and grant us, Lord, by your grace, the humility to come before your throne in repentance. Help us to live for your praise, O Lord, by that grace which purchased through the cross so that as we decrease, Christ's increase will bring about the eternal weight of glory. Start with my own heart, Lord. For Jesus' sake and in his name I pray. Amen.